So how about them Broncos? Yeah. <laughs> you notice Adrienne had orange on today. Yeah, no number on her back, but she's wearing her orange. <laughs> yeah, it's a great week, isn't it, to be part of the Bronco Nation. <laughs> One of the amazing parts of the whole story, I think, is just how they really were the underdog. And you take people that are considered to be of lesser talent, and yet they were shaped together. I admire the coaches greatly because they took this team and they had each person doing their part, fulfilling their place on the team. And because each one did their part correctly and right, they were able to beat a team that was considered much more powerful and stronger and of greater talent than them. Well, today we go back to the book of Exodus. We've taken a a break for the last few weeks, but we're moving back to the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, God is doing exactly that. He is taking a people and forming them and shaping them so they can live out their calling as the people of God. The same thing he's doing with you and with me in our lives. He's shaping us. He's making us. He's forming us so that we can live out our calling. God originally called the nation of Israel when he called Abraham. And he said to Abraham, I will bless you so that you can become a blessing to all the nations. And that's God's plan still. It was for Israel and in the book of Exodus as he forms them, he's blessing them so they could become a blessing. And he's doing the same with each of us. The people of God today. He's shaping us. He's forming us into the people of God. Now we've work through the first 19 chapters of the book of Exodus. It begins with the people of God in slavery. They're trapped. They know nothing else but slavery. But God, through miracles, calls them out, redeems them from Egypt, the strongest nation on earth, sets them free, defeats Pharaoh and his mighty army, destroys the army at the Red Sea as the waters wash over it. And then God, in his marvelous wisdom did not take Israel directly to the promised land. Instead, he took them into the wilderness so that they would learn how to walk with him. You see, at that point, all they knew was how to be slaves. They didn't know how to have a relationship with God and how to reflect him and how to live as the people of God. And first and foremost, they needed to learn dependence. So he took them into the wilderness And he took them into situations where they struggled and they didn't have water or food. And they had to cry out to him and realize he was their provider. He's the one who cares for them. And doesn't he do the same with you and with me? He takes us into the wilderness so that we might learn to trust him as the one who is our provider. And yes, it's difficult and yes, it's hard, but it's out of his love and his care because he's shaping us into the people of God. So he took them into the wilderness and then he takes them to Mount Sinai. And today we begin the section where he gives them the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Today we'll be looking at the first four of the Ten Commandments. And so often we look at these Ten Commandments and we see them as rules somehow. These are these are rules that I have to look at the rules and follow the rules and then maybe 
maybe God will bless me. (laughs) Or we look at them as some kind of foundation for a healthy society. And that's how a lot of people look at it, because they're foundational rules for for governing people and how they're to live. We've had a lot of uh, controversy in this country and in our own community about displaying the Ten Commandments. Should we display them? This is a display from Texas. And you see in the second slide, it's actually on the Texas State Capitol grounds where they've allowed, been allowed to keep this monument there. And so we've had this controversy. Should we display the Ten Commandments or should we not? What should we do? Is it right? Is it wrong? Well, let me tell you that I think the Scripture teaches, yes, we should display the Ten Commandments. But not in stone. You want to know how we should display them like that in people's lives, in our lives? Look around you at the people around you. You should be seeing a display of the Ten Commandments in the person next to you. And when you look in the mirror in the morning, you should see the Ten Commandments being lived out. Should they be displayed in this world in public? Absolutely. But not in stone. Do you realize that even Israel didn't display them in stone? God gave them the Ten Commandments in stone. But where did they go? In the Ark of the Covenant, never to be seen again, ever. Now, they were repeated, they were taught, etc., but the stone itself was never to be seen again. Even in Israel, they weren't displayed in some kind of public monument display. They were meant for Israel and for us to be displayed in our lives. Wherever we are, the Ten Commandments should be visible. But we need to realize the Ten Commandments are not just rules, laws, to be obeyed. Rather, they are completely relational. They govern relationships with God and with one another. They're not laws in that, in a sense that they're rules we have to be rule keepers to follow. Rather, they are rules of a covenant. A covenant is a relationship, a commitment between two parties. And they are, the Ten Commandments, are meant to be a covenant, a commitment between two parties and how we are to live together. So in the first four, we see how to love God, how we are to live in relationship with God. What does he really want from us? We talk a lot about loving God, but what does it look like? Well, the first four commandments give us a picture of what should be displayed in our lives as we walk through life and learn to love God more and more. So let's look at these together. We're in Exodus chapter 20. And in the first two verses, we get the motivation for living out these commandments, the motivation for loving God. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What should motivate us? Again, sometimes we think of the law, and in particular the Ten Commandments, and we think, okay, that's Old Covenant. And the way they related to God was out of fear. If you don't obey, you'll get zapped. God's some kind of cosmic policeman. 
And therefore, we've got to do the right thing or else we'll get zapped. If we want our lives to be okay, we better do the right thing. And we think that's the old covenant and sometimes we fall into that ourselves. But notice what their motivation is to be. It's gratitude. God had called them out of Egypt. He had set them free. He had given them life. He'd said, I formed you so that you might be my people. I've called you to myself. And out of gratitude, then respond to me. That's always what God looks for in relationship. He wants us to respond to him out of love, out of gratitude for what he has done for us when we didn't deserve it. To be full of thankfulness, to realize that, as Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We're helpless to save ourselves. We're helpless to give ourselves spiritual life. And yet he stepped in, saved us, made us alive together with Christ and gave us life. Just like for Israel, he called them out of Egypt and set them free from the house of slavery. You and I deserve hell based on our actions. But God has saved us and given us life. So how can we not respond in love to him? So that's the motivation for following him, for responding to him, for loving him. It's gratitude. It's not fear that somehow he's going to zap us or do something to us if we don't do it right. No, we love because he first loved us. And it was true for Israel, and it's true for us. So then he gives us the Ten Commandments. The first one is this, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. What does this mean? What's he talking about? Well, the little um, phrase there, before me, essentially uh, means, most literally, in front of my face. No other gods in front of my face. In other words, God is saying, when he looks at us, He wants to see our devotion to him and see no rivals, nothing else that we are looking to for life, nothing else that we are depending on. No one else is a rival to God in our lives. What is a God, though, in this? No other gods before me. What is a God literally? Well, Martin Luther, the great reformer, put it this way. A God is that to which your heart clings and entrusts itself. That to which your heart clings and entrusts itself. I think that's a good description. Whatever your heart wants to depend on and cling to and then entrusts itself to as you are the one that will take care of me. It is what, a God, is what you look to for life, for security, for significance. For life, security, significance. Think about your own life. What do you look to for life, for security, for significance? Now, in Israel, let's put it in context here, they were an agricultural society. And so for their life, for their security, for their significance, everything depended on the forces of nature. And so their gods tended to be the the gods of nature. They needed sunshine. They needed rain. They needed control of the storms so the storms didn't destroy their crops and kill their animals. 
They needed fertility so their animals would be fruitful. And so in that whole culture, they had gods of the sun and gods of the moon and gods of the rain and gods of the storm and gods of fertility. Egypt had all these different kinds of gods and so did the Canaanites and all the other nations around because that was who they worshipped. That's who they depended on for life, for security, for significance. Well, we look at that and we say, well, we're not like that. We're far more sophisticated. (laughs) But what are the gods in our culture? What do we depend on for life, for security, for significance? Take a walk in the mall. Watch TV for a few minutes. Our gods are displayed everywhere. Our gods are money, youthfulness, right? That's who we worship. And so we cast away the old and the aged because they're not youthful. You see, youthfulness is a God to us. Money, power, pleasure. How many commercials emphasize, you know, you deserve to be happy and fulfilled. And and if you just drink this beer, everything will be great in your life. And buy this car, whatever it is. It appeals to the God of pleasure that somehow you should never suffer, you should never struggle, you should always experience pleasure in your life. We worship the God of status, of fame, so we exalt sports heroes and TV stars and movie stars, even though their lives can be a complete disaster. Yet in our culture, we worship them, we worship fame. Sex appeal to us is one of our gods. Somehow that's, we think that that gives us life, security, significance. Success. Another person. You can worship another person and think, I need them in my life so that I can have life, security, significance. And we could go on and on, but these are just some of the primary ones that we see in our culture all around us. And if we think we're not influenced by those, then we're wrong. These are the gods that we worship all around us and our culture does. And it's very difficult for us not to fall into that ourselves. What gods do you worship that are our cultural gods around us that you think you need to have to experience life, security, and significance. It's natural for us to depend on those things. But God comes with this first commandment and says, okay, you've been worshiping other gods. Now I'm calling you to be devoted to me alone. No other gods. Put those other gods out of your life. Learn to trust me as your life, as your security, as your significance. I love you. I am for you. I will provide for you. I'm a good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You see, the more we learn to find life in Him and desire Him, the more we realize all that other stuff is unnecessary. In fact, those are gods that cannot deliver on what they promise. Oh, they make lots of promises. But only God is the true God who made us and knows our hearts and knows what we need. So God says, be devoted to me alone. Get rid of the false gods in your life. Lighten your load. (laughs) 
Let your devotion be to me alone. Now think for a minute what this means in displaying the Ten Commandments. Imagine in your families, in your work, to be a person who's free from scrambling after all these other gods and trying to find life in them. But to be a person who stands out because you're a person whose devotion is to the Lord, who you look to him for life, for security, for significance. You will stand out and the first of the Ten Commandments will be displayed in your life. That's what God's plan is. That's how we can be a blessing in this nation, in this world, in our culture. So what do people see written on the tablet of your life when they look at your life? Where's your devotion? Great question. A tough one, I understand. But worth wrestling with, with God. So he says, be devoted to me alone. Commandment number one. The second commandment, again, is part of loving God. Verse four through six. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So the second commandment, don't make idols. Okay, my guess is none of you have idols on your mantles, so you're probably safe. So we can go on to the third one. Uh, No. (laughs) Again, what's the dynamic here for for the people of Israel and for the nations of their time period? The world was a scary place for them, as it is for us. And what they would do to try to bring some control and to, into their world is they would think, okay, there's the sun God and, and how can we worship him and how can we somehow contain him in a way so we can control him and manipulate him to get what we need from him. So they would carve out of wood or stone an idol and they would set it on their mount, mantle and they would bow down to it and they would try to figure out what this God wanted so they could get from the God what they needed. Sunny days, fruitfulness, etc. And they did that with all their different gods. But see, the, the whole point of making idols is to somehow control or limit God. To put him in a form where now I can put him in a box and understand him and control him and get what I want from him. Okay? That's the essence of making idols. It gives you a sense of safety, a sense of control. It's a way to limit and contain the gods. And so you can somehow work somehow to get what you want from that God. Over the holidays, I went to the movie Apocalypto. I wouldn't recommend it. It's a pretty horrific show, actually. But it pictures this Mayan civilization that has reached... Uh, the heights of corruption in their attempts to manipulate the gods to get what they want. And so much of it is about human sacrifice and the horrible things they're doing to other human beings to try to control God. That's the extreme. 
But what do we do? (laughs) What do we do? How do we try to control and manipulate God ourselves? The commandment says, don't do it. Don't make idols. Don't somehow put God in a box. Don't somehow limit and control and try to manipulate God. Instead, submit to him as God. Let him be God in all his glory and his mystery and his awesomeness. Submit to him. Let him lead and control. Don't put him in a box, either theologically or lifestyle or whatever. Be true to the word, yes. But don't try to nail him down. I find that God in my life, is kind of an explosives expert. (laughs) Every time I think I've got him nailed down and figured out, he just blows the whole thing up. He brings things into my life or situations that expand my view of God and make me realize he's far beyond what I can control or manage. So this encouragement is don't try to manipulate him. We can do that in a lot of ways, I think. I've done it by trying to Think, well, if I just get more religious, maybe God will give me what I want. If I just pray more and have my quiet time more often. And I have a friend who's in a struggling marriage and it's a really difficult time for him. But he struggles because he feels like, you know, why is God doing this to me? I've been praying more. I've been going to Bible study. I've been, you know, why isn't he fixing my marriage? Do you realize what that is? That's making an idol. When we think somehow if I do certain things, then God's required to respond and give me what I want. That's not submitting to God. That is putting God in a box. That is making an idol of God. That is seeking to control him to get what we want out of life. We've all done that. We all have. But part of loving God, what he wants to see displayed in our lives is the submission to God that is like what we've been singing about this morning and we sing at other times, you know, the song that we sang, I think last week, blessed be the, or a couple of weeks ago, whenever, blessed be the name of the Lord. You give and you take away, but I will bless your name no matter what. Good times, bad times. I will submit to you. I will follow you. Why is this so important that we don't try to control and manipulate him? Well, he says right here, for a couple reasons. He says, one, There's a progression. He says, don't make these idols. Don't worship them and don't serve them. There's a progression with idols. When we begin to try to control God, suddenly the things that we do to try to control him become our gods. We begin to worship and serve them rather than him. They become the center of our lives rather than him. And it's unhealthy. And then he says, if you live that way, if you live in a way where you're trying to control your life instead of submit to God, it gets passed on to your kids. And he actually calls it a form of hatred of God. That's sobering to me. If I'm making idols, if I'm trying to control God, put him in a box, make him what I think he should be rather than who he is, submitting to who he is, he says it's a form of hating God. And it gets passed on to the next generation and the next generation. Now, notice that God in his love says it doesn't go past the fourth generation. But he says, when you choose to submit to me, if you love me in that way and you will submit to me and not make idols, but you will submit to me as God, that gets passed on 
to the thousandth generation. You see how grace is so much more powerful and awesome? And when we learn to depend on him, it affects generation after generation after generation far down the road. So part of loving God is commandment number two. We're to display a life where we submit to him, we follow him, we say, yeah, I know this is hard. It doesn't mean we don't struggle with what God gives us because we don't understand because he has a bigger plan than we understand. Yes, we struggle. Yes, it's hard. Yeah, I don't like the fact that my daughter is laid up at home and is going to be laid up for months and not, and her whole life has changed. I don't like that. But will I try to control and manipulate God or will I submit to the fact that he has a bigger plan and trust him with that? I learn to walk in that plan. Will I love him or will I hate him? That's the challenge of this second commandment, to not make idols, to display a life that submits to him. The third commandment is given in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. This word for vain is kind of a broad meaning in the Hebrew. It's, it has a connection to falsehood, to emptiness, to worthlessness, all those different connotations, worthless causes. In other words, he's saying, don't attach God's name. Don't take the Lord's name in vain means don't attach God's name to something that's false or empty or worthless. Don't attach his name to anything like that. Instead, honor him and guard his reputation as God. Don't take his name lightly. Don't take his name lightly. What does this mean? I, you know, it's commonly thought for many of us that this means, okay, don't swear. Don't take the Lord's name in vain means don't swear. Don't use it lightly in that sense. And we kind of limit it to that. But it's far broader than that. It includes that, but it's far broader than that. Dr. Bruce Walke lists three different ways that we can take the Lord's name in vain. And I just want to read some from him. The first, he says, is this. To take God's name to falsehood is to proclaim what is false in the name of God. Churches that proclaim false theology are guilty of breaking this commandment, for they associate God's name to false speech. Christians who engage in rituals of church attendance and tithing without the reality and enthusiasm of life in Christ are taking his name to what is false, for they engage in false worship. Christians who claim to hear the word of God, but have not, are false prophets, taking his name to what is deceitful. So Bruce Walke says, first of all, taking his name in vain means to attach it to something that's false. So a false theology, a health and wealth prosperity doctrine gospel that says, if you just have enough faith, God is obligated to give you health and wealth. That's a false theology. That's taking his name in vain. The scriptures never promised that here on earth. And we could go on and on with all kinds of false theologies, but that's just an example. That is breaking the third commandment. Or if someone says, well, God told me 
to do this. God told me this, and it isn't true, and it's clearly not true. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. That's attaching his name to something that is not true. And I've had people do that. I've had people sit in my office and say, you know, I prayed and prayed and God told me I need to divorce my husband. When they didn't have biblical grounds, it was clearly just they wanted their own way, but they're attaching God's name to their own thoughts and their own attitudes and their own opinions. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain. We must not do that. Secondly, Bruce Waltke says to, to take the name of the Lord in vain is to put God's name on evil acts. And that's been done throughout history. With the Crusades and the Inquisition, people who have said, yes, in the name of Christ, we can go to war and we can kill these people and we can do this in the name of Christ. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain, attaching his name to something that's wrong and clearly against his will. The third way that Bruce Waltke says we can take the name of the Lord in vain is this way, and I'll read again from him. Third, the commandment prohibits the application of God's name to what is futile or purposeless, taking his name to vanity. This is the great sin of our society. The majority of the people do not use God's name with evil intent, but they take his name to triviality. God's name is invoked for no purpose. It's seen as irrelevant. It's the butt of jokes and derision. This is done on television all the time, unquote. So that includes swearing, but it includes any time you just don't honor God's name. Give it the weight. He is the God of the universe. He is the creator. And when we take him lightly, we are taking his name in vain. So I hope this expands for you this whole idea of what this is talking about. It's not just swearing. Of course, that's taking his name in vain, but that's, it's far more than that. We are to honor his name. We are to guard his reputation, honor him as the God of the universe. And if we will do that in our world that dismisses God and essentially thinks God is dead, or though most Americans say they believe in God, it doesn't affect their lives at all. But if we will honor him and say, no, he's God, he's in control, and we believe that, then the third commandment will be displayed in our lives in this world. The fourth commandment is the Sabbath, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So it begins this way. He says, remember, remember the Sabbath day. Don't forget the Sabbath day. Don't forget that God is the creator. Again, think of their culture. Agricultural, they're having to work all the time to take care of the animals, to take care of the fields. And it's very easy in that kind of world to begin to think it all depends on you. If I just work harder, a little harder, I can produce more crops and I can make money and I can take care of my own life and it all depends on me. And God says, I want you as the people of God to love God in this way. Take the seventh day off. Do no work. 
Not you, not your servants, not your children, not your animals, nobody. So that you can have a day to remember. To remember that God is the provider. That God is the one who is taking care of you. That God is the one who provides life. Don't live such a frantic, driven life, he's saying. But remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Rest. Stop from working. Now, isn't this one of the great sins of our culture? We're frantic. We feel like we have to work all the time. And if I just work a little harder and we're so busy, we're working at our careers, our jobs. We work so hard at our families, drive our kids everywhere. And we're soccer moms and soccer dads and soccer coaches and every other sport coaches. And, you know, we're we're driven to try to produce the right family. And we're just like producing a crop. We're driven to try to do the right thing. We're driven in our lives because We've fallen into this mentality in our world, in our efficient American society, that it all depends on us. It's interesting if you go to other cultures. I spent some time in Italy in these little villages because uh, Jeannie is Italian, and we went to visit all our Italian relatives some years ago. And they live a totally different world because their culture is different. It's not so driven. We visited some relatives that were retired at age 50, and what they did is sit around in the square and talk all day. Because to them, that was, that was what was important. That was what gave them life, were those relationships. But for us, it's drivenness, it's work, and we have to work and work and work and work as long as we can. We're a busy people because we somehow think it all depends on us. We forget that God is our shepherd and he's our provider. He's the one who cares for us. He's the creator. So what does this mean for us as New Testament believers, as the people of God? How do we love God? Should we keep a Sabbath day? Well, it's interesting that this commandment is the only one of the ten that is not repeated in the New Testament as a direct commandment. In fact, we're told in the book of Colossians, let no one be your judge as to a Sabbath day or other festival day, or anything like that. We're not commanded in the New Testament to keep a Sabbath day. But you know what we are commanded to do? To rest in Christ all the time. All the time. To live a life that is not frantic, that is not busy like our culture around us, that understands that God is the provider, He's in control, it doesn't depend on me, and so I can rest in Him. Part of loving Him, fulfilling the fourth commandment, is living a life that is much more calm and quiet and at rest all the time. To not feel like you have to take that next job. I I so admire those who have continued to turn down jobs that would take on more responsibility and climbing the corporate ladder, etc., because they say, no, I don't want the demands of that and the pressure of that because God has called me to other things. We need to live lives that display a rest in Christ. Now, should you take a day off during the week? That's between you and God. I think it's very appropriate that we have a holy rhythm to our lives. We work and we rest. We work and we rest. Now, because Sunday is my work day and there's a variety of ways, reasons it's hard for me to take a full day just kind of rest, 
I find for me, my Sabbath has to be daily. My mornings are very, very um, important to me. And I have an extended time of prayer and time in the word and time with the Lord and rest. And then I look for other opportunities to get away when I can for a day or a weekend or whatever. But somehow you need a rhythm of work and rest and an opportunity to remind yourself that it doesn't depend on you. It depends on him. That's what it means for us to love God in the fourth commandment, to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Because in seven days, six days, God created the earth, heavens and the earth. And the seventh day he rested. We need spiritual rest constantly and we need physical rest regularly. That's part of keeping the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath. Well, those are the first four of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not rules to keep as much as they are relational guidelines, covenant relationships, a covenant to help us become the people of God that he called us to be. And the first and most important commandment, as Jesus told us, is love God. How do we do that? We seek to get the other gods out of our lives so that we're devoted only to him. Only to him. We seek to submit to him instead of trying to control and manipulate him to get what we want. We submit to who he is as God. We seek to honor him, to not take his name in vain, to not hold it lightly, to not attach it to false theology, but to truly honor him as the God that he is. And then finally, we love him by resting in him. By living with gratitude over what he's done. And it doesn't depend on me. It depends on him. All my work is just to work alongside him. So should we display these Ten Commandments? Absolutely. On our hearts. In our lifestyle. In the way we live day to day. Not in stone. But rather in lives that are devoted devoted to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you pursued us and you've given us life as a gift. You've made us your people. Lord, help us to respond in gratitude to you, to live a life that's devoted to you, submitting to you, honoring you, resting in you. Help us to love you back because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.